All right, church is going to make our way back to our seats, please. Once again, good morning. As you sit down, go and open with, you, with me to John chapter 5. We'll continue our study this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to pick up a pew Bible in front of you that's on page 837. I just think it's important to see God's Word in front of us as we're studying through it, so go ahead and pull that out. Um, as you do so, I'm trying to get used to these new glasses. Um, my arms have not been long enough. I've been trying to use readers, but then the last few weeks I've been trying to get my readers on and off, and it's been a mess. And um, Susan said the last time I read, when I couldn't get my readers back on, I was missing all kinds of words. And so I took the plunge. I'm trying to get used to glasses. Um, you all look incredible. Like, I have not seen you all look so good. Like, it's good. But um, yes. Anyways, as we had gone this morning, authority. Authority. Man, it's a word that we all struggle with, is it not? It's almost become like a bad word in our culture. We do not want anyone or anything to have authority over us. Ultimately, we want to be our own authority, calling our own shots, making our own decisions, determining what is right or wrong. This is why oftentimes our conversations start with, well, I think or I feel. How many conversations started for you that this week? Right? The struggle that we have goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted to be in authority, and this thinking continues in each of our lives today. And yet, Jesus Christ claimed to be God himself. And if that is true, then he means, that means he ultimately has authority over each one of our lives. The one who has not only made us and given us life, but also as our maker, our designer, knows what's best for us, knows how we can experience the joy of his good design. And as we live underneath his loving and his wise and his good reign, we live underneath the authority that he has in our lives. See, we all must struggle with the question, ultimately, who is my authority? And the answer to that very question sets the very foundation of our lives. Jesus, back in Matthew 7, tells the story of two different people, one who built their house or their foundation upon the rock, another person who built the foundation of their life upon the sand. And he said, when the wind and the waves beat against them, the one who built his life upon the rock stood, the one who built his life on the sand fell. And he began to describe then what this means. Jesus said it was the wise man who builds his life on the rock. Is he or she who builds his life upon the very words of Jesus, the very words of the authority of Jesus in our life, will be the one who will stand all that life throws our way. But the fool, Jesus said, is the one who does not listen, who builds their life upon their own authority, is like the one who builds in the sand. And when the wind and the rain and the waves come, and church, they will come. They will be washed away. And Jesus added, and great and great will be their fall. Now, I know that we often use hyperbole. I love hyperbole, and I use hyperbole all the time. I told you not to exaggerate a million times. Those car repairs cost me an arm and a leg. I waited forever, forever for my wife to come out of church and stop talking to people. Snakes make my skin crawl. I laughed my head off. These are all hyperboles, right? Hyperbole is an expression used to exaggerate, to emphasize a point or a truth. The message in our text this morning is going to declare that Jesus is God. And church, that is no hyperbole. There is no hyperbole in saying that this passage of scripture that we're looking at is one of the most important scriptures that Jesus himself, out of his very words, declare who he is. 
It's no hyperbole that what we do with this claim that Jesus is God is one of the, is the most single most important decision you will ever make in your life. It'll determine how you are truly building the foundation of your life. Not only does it determine our relationship with God, but it impacts so many different issues in our life. Whether you experience the true joy of God's design as you look upward to build your life upon him, Christ, as your authority, as your rock, or as you walk through life and all of its many difficulties and trials and complexities, will you look inward, trying to be in control where we try to determine for ourselves and our feelings, often dictated by the world around us or the culture around us, and thus building our life upon a shaky foundation. See, this has incredible implications in our life. It impacts the peace that we feel, whether or not we lay awake at night, worried about all the different things that we try to control, controlling our circumstances, so we're anxious. It impacts our relationships and thinking that we're an authority, ultimately thinking what we think is right, so we can try to control and manipulate, often seeking to change other people. It impacts the joy and the true freedom that we experience in all of God's good design in areas of sexuality and dating and marriage. It determines what we view as right or wrong or the ethics by which we live our lives by. It impacts what we watch or what we do when we think no one else is watching. It all comes down to, for every single one of us, who is your authority? Now, the main point in this passage is very straightforward. It's not challenging to get to the main point. Jesus is God, one with the Father and worthy of our complete submission and obedience. Up to this point, if we've been studying through the Gospel of John, Jesus has been revealing himself in increased clarity, starting out with the disciples as he called them to follow him, then his first public miracle in Cana, where he turned water into wine, then to a religious man named Nicodemus, then remember in chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman breaking all kinds of social norms and racism, to the public official where he healed his son, and now last week we begin to see him revealing himself to the religious leaders, which is going to expose the hardness of their hearts. Remember last week, Jesus now in Jerusalem heals a paralytic man, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And his hope was that he would sit by this pool and as the superstition said, as the angels stir the water, if he was the first to get into the water where that was stirring what happened, that he would be healed. That was his hope every day, waiting and waiting and waiting. And Jesus came, not giving in to the superstition, but actually looked at this man and had compassion on him and said, get up, walk and take your mat, up your mat. It was a miracle, and people were marveled at what Jesus had done, and yet the religious leaders did not marvel at what Jesus had done. Instead, they were irate, even upset, because Jesus would have the audacity to heal this man on the Sabbath of all days and command this man to pick up his mat on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. We studied with Adam before Christmas. The gift that God gave man to be able to rest in him and know that he is God. And yet the religious people of Jesus' day made the Sabbath almost into a religion of its own. And the Mishnah was actually these oral traditions that would come alongside the commands God gave us in Scripture. And they would paint for this picture of all the different things that you were made to do on the Sabbath. You could carry a burden in your house across your house, but you could not carry a burden on your shoulder in public, the Mishnah said. So when this man was healed, he took his bed and on his shoulder and he carried it. The religious leaders, man, they didn't marvel and worship Jesus for what had taken place. The way that he extended compassion, healed this man who had been a paralytic for 38, day, 38 years. Instead, they pitched a fit. 
that this was happening on the Sabbath. And Jesus is not going to let this go. And as he does so, he's going to reveal very clearly to us who he is. And so let's read along in the passage, starting in chapter 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, But he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now here is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." Church, this is God's holy word. And so as we see, this passage is all about Jesus himself with great clarity, speaking for himself as to who he is, revealing his true identity. This is the question. Who is Jesus? Now, a lot of different people have a lot of different answers to that. In fact, I have done this in the past, getting ready for a message, went on campus with a video camera and just asked a whole bunch of students, who is Jesus? And just like you suspect, I got a whole variety of different answers. Many would claim that Jesus is a good moral teacher. He taught us how to love and the world would be better if we would just follow the good rabbi's teaching. Others were quick to say that he's a good prophet, as several world religions can't deny the existence or the goodness of Jesus, but they simply declare him just to be a good prophet. Some influenced by the cults that masquerade as Christians, like the two that knocked on my door yesterday morning, that Jesus is a God, but not the God. I remember one guy, and and I think he was stoned, I think. And I remember asking him, who is Jesus? And he said, yeah, dude, like, no one knows what happened to him from like age five until he was an adult. And so he went down to the Orient and he went down there to learn about the mystic arts. He learned how to slow his heart down. He learned the great, I think he talked about essential oils. That way he can go and he could go into the tomb and slow his heart down. And then three days later, come back and raise what appeared to be raised from the dead. All right. It's interesting how every once in a while, asking that question, you see people light up. Jesus is my Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the one who rescued me from my sins. Right? There's a lot of opinions about who Jesus is, but what about you? 
Who do you say Jesus is? That's going to determine who the authority in your life is. And this passage is all about Jesus answering that question for himself. And so we get in verse 16, how the religious leaders are making a big deal because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. But what was Jesus' response? He said this, My father is working until now, and I am working as well. What Jesus is saying is, is the Father works on the Sabbath. He never takes a day off. The Sabbath was made for man, not God. The Father is always at work, and so am I, Jesus says. The Jews knew that Jesus' statement about working on the Sabbath was a claim to equality with God because we get verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, what? Making himself equal to God. Making himself equal to to God. Now you can watch the Discovery Channel and you can come up with all the different hypotheses of why the Jews did not like Jesus. Maybe they felt politically threatened by him or he's a revolutionary, he had too much power. This passage is explicit. It tells us why they wanted to kill him because he's claiming to be God, equal with God. And now when we get to verse 19, Jesus has an opportunity to correct them, right? To be able to say, you guys are misunderstanding. I've never claimed to be equal with God. But he doesn't. He doesn't back down. He actually doubles down. And he presses in. And he's going to unveil these three different claims about why he is God himself. And so let's look at those three different claims that we see in this passage. The first claim that Jesus had of why he is God is the first one is that he is one with the Father in his works. He is one with the Father in his works. And so we get verse 19. And Jesus said to them, truly, Truly, I love those words. Some translations say verily, verily. We don't talk that way anymore, but I think that's a pretty cool word. Verily, verily. What that actually means is like, listen up. What I'm getting ready to say is really important. This is truth that does not contradict. That's what truly, truly means. And every time in our passage we see that come up, Jesus saying, listen up, listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Whatever the Son does, the Father does. Like Father, like Son. Everything that Jesus does is in perfect concert or harmony with the Father's works and His will. This is why in a few chapters, Jesus is going to state in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And what were the Jews' response to that? They picked up stones, getting ready to stone Him for blasphemy. This is the glory, the power, the mystery, if you will, of the Trinity. One God, three persons that we sang about earlier. Each person having a unique role, yet acting as one in perfect unity together. Each one bringing glory to one another as well as serving us image bearers in different ways. The Son does nothing of his own accord, only what the Father does, Jesus says. They don't act independently of each other. When one acts, the other acts. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus was claiming to be God and saying that there are one and works with the Father together. And this is why they were seeking to kill him. Now, I know I may be dating myself a little bit, but some of you remember Phil Donahue? Anybody remember him? He was a precursor to like Oprah and uh, Jerry Springer, daytime television. And Phil Donahue talked about why he had left the faith. He grew up in the church and why he left the faith. And he said this, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down to go to Calvary or the cross himself? 
When then Jesus could have said, this is my father in whom I'm well pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his son to be murdered on a cross in order that he might redeem my sins? Or maybe you've heard the argument go this way. If God the Father sent his son to the earth to be able to absorb the wrath that we deserved, well, then that is nothing more than divine child abuse. But what these two accusations do not take into account is that God the Father and God the Son act in unity together. Willingness together. This is God's plan of redemption that they are willing to walk in together. Therefore, like in Isaiah 53, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the Son. He has put him to grief. I think it's safe to say from this passage, it was Jesus' good will and pleasure to have the Father crush him. Why? Because they were working in unity, in one accord to redeem us. Well, verse 20 reminds us of something really important, that the Father loves the Son. And he says, greater works than these, you will show them that you may marvel. Well, now we're going to unpack some of these greater things as Jesus is going to declare that he is over not only eternal life, but judgment. Let's look at this. second claim that Jesus made is he has the power over life, eternal life, church family. Verse 21 says it this way, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. You think about the audience who's receiving this, and they knew that the only person who is the one who gives life is God himself. The only one who numbers our days, the only one who is the giver of life is God himself. And therefore, when Jesus is saying that I have the power over life, they knew that he was claiming equality with God. Jesus is going to demonstrate this in a few chapters when he physically raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus is talking more than just physical life and giving physical life, but he's talking about eternal life. Therefore, when we go down to verse 24, Jesus is the giver of eternal life over those who are spiritually dead. He makes it utterly clear how narrow the path is to obtain eternal life. Jesus says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and secondly believes in him who sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. It says one must hear, but one must also believe. This is the narrow path to eternal life. Jesus is going to make this utterly clear again in a few chapters in the book of John. John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, y'all get that we live in a very pluralistic culture right now. You do you, that's great for you, that's your truth for you, this is mine. All that it matters is that we believe in something, right? Is this what Jesus is saying? No. The way of salvation is narrow. And I believe our foe, the evil one, is using pluralism to lead so many people astray. It's such a big cultural movement that we must be affirming of all people's beliefs. But we can't, church. We must not affirm what is not true. If we are standing on the authority of the words of Jesus, then that's not love. That leads people down a horrible path, a destructive path, a path of destruction and judgment. And that's not love. Now, do we respect all people? Absolutely, as image bearers. Do people have the right to believe whatever they want? Absolutely. I am a big supporter of religious liberty for all people, no matter what they believe. But being respectful and being loving and caring does not mean that we do, that we stand by and affirm all beliefs is true. That's not loving. Because according to the words of Jesus, 
We must contend for people's hearts and point people to his powerful, challenging, and exclusive claims. There are not many pathways up the same mountain that lead to one God. Jesus made this exclusive claim, and I get that that's hard. I get that it goes against the flow of our culture. I get that when you hold on to that, people will call you mean and exclusive. But the reality is, if this is what Jesus says, and if he is our authority, we can't take some of the words of Jesus and then discount others because it doesn't feel good or match what our culture is saying. And yet, we must do so as we proclaim the truth. We must do it with compassion and love and graciousness towards people as we proclaim the truth. Now notice how this passage makes explicit and how one gains eternal life. It's not because we try to be good people and somehow our good outweighs our bad. It's not that we just have a sincere belief in something. But Jesus said it very clearly. Everyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, one who hears and believes has his eternal life. They won't come into judgment. They will pass from death to life. One must hear and one must believe. Now you think about this. This is so important why we must proclaim the very words of God, the message of Jesus. God uses his word through the power of the spirit to transform hearts. Therefore, we must stand on his word. We must proclaim his word. The apostle Paul makes this point really clear when he passionately tells the church in Rome about the reality that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, the Apostle Paul said. And then he goes into this argument, well, how are they to believe if they don't hear? And how are they to hear unless we go to them? And then he concludes this whole argument in verse 17 of Romans chapter 10. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. If you love someone, we will declare truth about Jesus, that he is God. We will declare truth about his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, for he is our authority. We must proclaim his word. But it's not just hearing the words. This passage makes it very clear that we must believe. We must believe. And I know there's a lot of people in this room who know, who have heard the word, who can even tell you the word. But the question is, have you put your whole life's faith Do you believe in these words that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation for anyone who would believe? When that happens, when a person puts their faith in Christ, they are born again. They're no longer trusting in themselves, they are trusting in him. And what happens when we truly believe? It tells us it believes in him who has sent, sent me has eternal life. Notice that word that's underlined, what does that say? Has. Isn't it interesting that's not have? Like you're going to have future tense? But it says anyone who believes in me has eternal life right now. For the person who believes in Jesus, eternal life starts now. The victory that we have in him starts now. The presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives who leads us and guides us starts at the moment of conversion. Therefore, the words of Christ as our authority are important and we must believe. Now there's a third claim that Jesus made to being God. The third claim that Jesus made that he was God is reminding them that he has authority to judge over all people. He has the authority to judge all people. Now, if we go back and look at verses 22 and 23, it says, For the Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son, 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And again, if you step back and you think of the original recipients of this, the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, they knew that there was only one person who had judgment over people. And who was that? It was God himself. Therefore, Jesus saying that I am the one who judges all people. Jesus is equating himself being equal as God. Then in verse 23, he talks about people honoring the Son or worshiping the Son because of this authority. We know throughout Scripture there is only one that is worthy of worship, and that is God alone. Now, we jump down to verse 27. It says this, Every person will stand before God in judgment. He has given all authority to execute judgment because he is what? He is what? The Son of Man. Now, this is a really important word, Son of Man. Jesus actually calls himself Son of Man several times in the different Gospels. It's one of his favorite ways of calling himself. And again, it doesn't matter what we think what Son of Man means. You have to ask, what did the original Jews receive this declaration as? Well, these Jewish people knew God's word and they understood the prophet Daniel in talking about the one to come, the Son of Man. He says this in the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like what? The Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before them and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples and all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, that which shall not pass away. His kingdom, his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So as the Old Testament spoke about this individual who would come and sit on the throne forever, to be the one who executed judgment over all the nation, the individuals whose name would be Son of Man. Jesus stands up before the religious leaders and says, that is me. I am the Son of Man. Of man. I am the ancient of days who has dominion and receives glory and who is building a kingdom. I am the Son of Man. Let's finish here in verse 28. Verse 28 and 29 says, and Jesus finishes up and he says, Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, Jesus is beginning to push into the already not aspect of our faith. He's looking to head to the reality that every single person, believer or non-believer, will be resurrected. Will be resurrected. The judgment will be simple. It will be based on where our faith is at, who we trust in. For we will be found on that day when we are raised from the dead, Trusting in ourselves as we stand before God. God, I was a good person. I was as bad as others. And comparatively, that may be true. But compared to a holy God, none of us can stand. We all fall desperately short. We'll be judged if our faith is founding, trusting in ourselves, our works, our religion, the ways that we try to earn our way to God. And if we trust ourselves, it says the resurrection to judgment means that we will spend an eternity apart from God an active and conscious torment. That's a resurrection to judgment. And yet, if we are found trusting in Jesus, knowing how much we fall horribly short, 
trusting in his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection to demonstrate that he is God, we will be resurrected into his presence forevermore. I think it's important to note in this passage, there's a couple confusing things about this. One is he's talking about the resurrection. I want to state that it's not our good works that save us. This is clear from the rest of Scripture. This is even clear from our passage that one who hears the words of Jesus and believes in them is the one who is saved. The good works that we do are the fruit of our faith when we have properly placed our faith in Jesus and he has regenerated our hearts. We don't want to confuse this with a salvation by works. That is not true. But works always accompany true faith, which is why often in Scripture that these kinds of statements are made. When you think about the believer being resurrected from the dead, like 1 Corinthians 15 tells all about what this looks like. Whole chapter pressing into the glory of our future hope for those who are found in Christ. Talk about when the trumpet will sound, when we hear his voice, that the dead in Christ will rise, the perishable will be raised imperishable, that which is sown in dishonor and weakness will be raised in power, receive new glorified bodies. Like, does that like excite anybody else this morning? Like having a new glorified body. No more glasses. No more hurts. No more pains. It's going to be awesome. This is the great hope of the believer. This is what we long for. But for the unbeliever, this is the most terrifying reality. Standing before a holy God only wrapped in our own righteousness. Only having our own efforts to stand on. Again, I don't care how good you are. It will never be good enough. And this is why Jesus and his loving kindness as the Father set forth this plan to redeem and to rescue you and I because of the love that he has for us and the joy that he wants us to experience in him. And so church, this is all that Jesus proclaimed very clearly. One of the most clear declarations in scripture where Jesus out of his own lips says, he is God. Why? Because he's one with the Father in his works. Why? Because he is the one who has the power over life and eternal life, and he has been given the ability to judge all creation. He is God. Now, though Jesus' claims are clear in this passage, this is why the Jews were wanting to kill Jesus, not because he was a good teacher, not because he was a revolutionary, but because he himself was claiming to be God. All right, these are huge claims from the mouth of Jesus. These are audacious claims unless they are true. And if they're true, that changes everything. And that demands a response from every single one of us. And a no response is a response nonetheless. Is Jesus God? And if so, then he is our authority our authority over every part of our lives. Now, I know many want to say, yes, I respect Jesus. He is a good teacher. He is a good prophet. Well, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I know some of you heard this before, but it so much speaks in to this that I want to read this again. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, and I think it's important enough. This is why I put this in your bulletins. I think this is something for you to really contemplate. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking of Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, C.S. Lewis said, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said 
would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Man, that's a powerful quote. And to be honest with you, this quote grabbed a hold of my heart when I was a freshman at CSU. Up to that point, I had a place for Jesus. He was a good teacher. He was someone who I thought I'd be a better person if I followed, but it kind of stayed there. He was not the authority of my life. And as these two people on my dorm floor were courageous enough to confront me with the claims of Jesus and loved me enough to challenge me, I began to really grapple with this quote. There was this quote that I read in a book in More Than a Carpenter that I had to really wrestle with. Can't I intellectually, honestly call Jesus a good teacher anymore? And it was at that point where I realized that he was either a liar, he was either a lunatic, or he was Lord who I needed to submit my life to as the authority of my life. In church, by the grace of God, on that January day, 20-some years ago, I surrendered my heart to Jesus, trusting that he is God, that he was my provision for my sin, and that he victoriously rose from the dead and overcame the grave, that I could trust him, I could believe in him. And my life has never been the same. Now, at that moment, angels didn't start speaking that I could hear. At that moment, all my hardship and trials did not go away but the direction of my life changed. And he, since that day, has been changing me day by day, month by month, year by year. Is Jesus God? Is he the authority of your life? Are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? And as you are here today and you are wrestling with maybe knowing about God, believing that Jesus may be a good teacher and one who should encourage us how we should live, I pray that today you would see that he is your God and that he died on the cross for you and that you would surrender your life to him. But I also know that for every single one of us, as followers of Jesus, I'll speak for myself, I believe with all my heart of Jesus' claims as God. And yet I know that many times throughout every single day, I struggle to allow Jesus to be the authority over every part of my life. I'm daily struggling in different decisions to want to take the throne of my life every single day. I often wrestle with thinking it's about me and thinking about what I believe is true. Church, I'm continually grieved at how often I live my life as though I am the authority, but I'm not. He is. I'm grieved with how many conversations are started with me saying, you know, I think or I feel, and then proceed to tell someone what I think as if I am the authority. At the end of the day, respectfully, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters that the God of the universe and who he is and how he has revealed himself to us. He is our authority. 
And I remember back, it was about 25 years ago that I took the biblical distinctives class here at Mountain View. I've been a believer for about five years at that time. And I remember taking that class. I had just gotten back from the mission field. I came to faith in college, went overseas a year after I graduated. I came back and I took biblical distinctives. And I know many of you are taking actually the class right now. We have about 73 people signed up for the biblical distinctives class, which is fabulous. I'm excited because I know what God did in my own heart through that class. And when I took that class, man, I had so many different opinions about so many different topics, and I didn't hesitate to tell you what I thought about those different things. And in the very first class, very first lesson was all about the authority of God's word. That if Jesus is God, he's given us his word, then he is our authority. And church, I remember just being so humbled, so humbled. Up to that point, yeah, I loved Jesus and I was trying to make him known. I just got back from the mission field or I'd teach. But the way I would teach was thinking about what do these students need to hear? Oh, and then what can I use the word to back up what I think they need to hear? And in that biblical distinctives class, man, I was humbled that God's word is my authority. And since that day, I've been trying to stand behind God's word to be able to teach what his word has to say because his word is what transforms our hearts. As I continued in the rest of the class, and again, I had so many different opinions, and my opinions were different from what was being taught in distinctives. And I had to wrestle with it. And it wasn't about what Mountain View believed. It was about me wrestling with God's word on my own, not with what I'd been given, not with what the culture had been telling me. And I remember having to be humbled as I went through the different lessons and having to say, God, I have to yield to you in this area. I don't like it. I don't feel like this is what I feel like it should be. But I submit and I surrender to you. And it's been such a blessing over the last 25 years to watch even the things that I had opinions against become the very things that I've seen the joy of standing upon and seeing fruit in my life, holding to those things that God's word has revealed about so many different issues. See, church, in a world where self-expression and self is like the highest virtue, to be a people who are humble enough to recognize that Jesus is our authority, his words are more important than what we think. I think of all the different issues of our day, will we stand upon the truth, truly be a people that we know when it's hard to share and the truth? Yes, let's do it in love, let's respect people, but let's stand on his word nonetheless. And one thing I'm just really concerned right now is a large number of people that I'm coming into contact as you begin to talk about, well, what are you basing your life on? What authority are you standing on? Watching a lot of people, kind of the tagline and the tag word is deconstructing their faith. Growing up and being able to stand on certain truths and then getting to a certain point in life, which we all have to do, and we all have to make our faith our own, but then begin to deconstruct into the things instead of standing on the solid word of God. Now what I feel and what I think and what culture around me thinks is most important and I take a step off of the solid rock of Jesus and I become more of the authority in my life. And yes, I have to sometimes do Bible gymnastics to begin to prove why the Bible could say these things, but I'm just twisting God's word. And the reason I'm so concerned by this, because these are real people that I love. And real people who I know when they step off of the rock of Jesus and onto the shaky sand, that when the wind and the waves of this life come, that they're going to be rocked. And as Jesus says, great is that destruction, great is that fall. And so my appeal is for all of us, you young people who are here, who you're deciding what you're going to build the foundation of your life upon, 
may I appeal to you that there is nothing in your life that will bring you greater joy, greater fulfillment than standing on the words that your maker who loves you and who is for you and who knows about you and knows how he's designed you, knows how he's designed sexuality, knows the very depth of what you long for inside, that you would build your life upon him. And that none of us would be so foolish that we would think that we can outthink God. How many times do we think like, I think, I feel, I long to be a man that doesn't just look at what I feel and I think, but my knee-jerk reaction would be, Jesus, what do you think? What does your word say? And then I'd build upon my life upon that foundation of his word. Church, we want to be a church that stands upon his truth. I think this is what has been so good about this last month. Different topics that we've had to look into, that we've had to wrestle with. Our heart and our hope and our prayers that we'd be a church that would stand upon the glorious truth of God because that's going to lead us to the greatest joy in our lives. And as we've had to wrestle through these different issues, they've been some hard issues, I wonder how many times you've found yourself thinking, I feel or I think. Would you and I be humble enough to say, God, what do you think? Because you're my master, you're my maker, you're my authority, you are God. We want to be a church that stands firmly upon the truth of Jesus. Amen? And I know many of you resonate with that. But I also know that if Jesus is going to be our authority in his truth, in his word, then Jesus should also be our authority in how he loved people and how he gave compassion to people. And this is where we're going to start wrestling through and you start to see our different bents coming out. That Jesus was just as authoritative in how he loved people and how he had compassion for people. Who was Jesus the most harsh with? It was the people we saw today. It was the religious leaders that knew better. They had a, an idea of truth. And yet as he talked about, woe to you because you're like whitewashed tombs, all cleaned up on the outside, but inside you're like dingy bones. Church, would we not be a people that just stand on truth, but stand on the compassionate love of Jesus. And when you put those two things together, and that's why we tried so hard during our series to make sure that we married those two things. That was some of the heartbeat behind the panel that we did. We wanted to humanize what's going on because it's so easy just to be truth, throw it over the fence and throw it over the fence. These are real issues that we all struggle with. We've got to roll up our sleeves and get into people's lives and love them where they're at. Build relationship and build trust, but point them to the truth of Jesus. And when I think about that, man, that's the church that I want to be part of. A church that stands on the truth because Jesus is our authority, but also stands in the authority of the compassion of Jesus that when he looked over Jerusalem, he wept that we'd be people that would weep for the brokenness of this world. That's the church I want to be a part of. Is that the church you want to be a part of? Truth and love, mercy and justice. And I trust as we do that, we will put him on display. Amen? Would you just take a moment, and I know there's been a lot said, there's a lot of hard truths that are here in God's word today. Worship team comes up, would you just wrestle for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what he wants to say to you this morning?
We're going to prepare our hearts to celebrate communion together, to go to the Lord's table together. And it's such a gift that God has given us that week after week that we're able to remember that Jesus, God himself, took on flesh to dwell among us, to live a perfect life that we could not live, to die a sacrificial death in our place and to victoriously raise from the dead, to be able to show and demonstrate he truly is God and worthy of all of our lives. And so as we come to the table, we get to declare this truth together. We get to declare that Jesus is God and that we can believe in him as the authority, as the one that we are building our lives upon, the one that we want to surrender our lives to on a daily and a moment-by-moment basis. And so as we take communion this morning, we are declaring our faith together. And that is why as we take communion, we often warn you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, then don't just do this religiously. This is for those who are believing that Jesus is God and that he is the way of salvation that we, you and I desperately need. So if you're here this morning and you've yet to believe in him, if you've yet to surrender your life to him and you're kind of checking things out, when well, you're always welcome. We're so glad you're here. But I would pray that today, that maybe you would realize that Jesus is so much more than a good teacher. He is so much more than one that just we can kind of follow his teachings of love. He is God himself who has given his life for you. And my prayer that is today, not tomorrow, today would be a day that you would submit to him, that you would surrender and look on him in a simple gaze of faith. And if that is you today, that during this time as we prepare our hearts, that you would just surrender to Jesus, looking to him and his words as truth, as you believe in them, as you trust in him. And then as you've done that, then to be able to take communion with us to celebrate God's faithfulness in our lives. Ushers are going to come down here in a moment. They're going to pass the elements. Let's hold on to those because we're going to partake together because we are a family of God together, believing that Jesus is God together. Let's prepare our hearts. Ushers, why don't you come down?